KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. KMTT, the Torah podcast. Today is Tuesday, Shur in Parshat HaShavua. Shur Parshat HaShavua will be given this week as usual by Harav Chanoch Waxman. This week, Parshat Ketisa, I would like to talk about uh, the most dramatic event certainly the most dramatic event in uh, Parshat Kipisa, and perhaps the most dramatic event in the latter part of Sefer Shemot. Now, of course, referring to the story of the Egel HaZahav, the sin of the golden calf, that is, it is colloquially known. And what I would like to do, primarily, is to sketch out two approaches um, to the nature uh, of these events, the nature of the sin of uh, the golden calf to the sin of the Egel, I think at the end of the day, these two approaches blend together in a very interesting fashion. Um, now, to begin, I would like to begin with a, with a famous question regarding um, the sin of the golden calf. And, and to sketch out the question, we need to take a look at the, at the text, although, although it is, of course, um, familiar. So, in Shemot Perak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Aleph, the Torah says as follows, Vayara'am ki voshesh moshe laredet minahar, and the people saw that Moshe was delayed in coming down from the mountain. And the people gathered over and against their own. And they said to him, Make us an Elohim. And for the moment I will not translate it, or perhaps loosely translate it as make us a God. That will go before us. This man Moshe, who brought us out of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. So, of course, Aaron, uh, perhaps shocked, says to them in Pasuk Bet, So, take out or throw down the golden nose rings that are in the noses, uh, uh, pardon me, the ears uh, of your, the golden rings that are in the, no- the ears of your wives, uh, of your family, and bring me the gold. Of course, as we go along, we know what happens. The people bring the gold to Aaron. He takes it, he fashions the Egel Masecha out of this gold, as it's known in, um, as it's called in the Torah, Egel Masecha. And then, at, toward the end of Pasuk Dalid, when the Egel Masecha has been fashioned from the gold, the people say, Vayomru, it says in the text, Ela Elohecha Yisrael Asher Alucha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. The people proclaim, um, these are, this is your God that took you up from Egypt. Now, as things progress, if this is not bad enough, things go from bad to worse. A few verses later, we find out that there is an altar, and the next day the people get up, and after building the altar in Pasuk Vav, they brought sacrifices, there are burnt offerings, there are peace offerings, they sat down to eat, and drink, they sat down, they ate, they drank, they got up, they celebrated. You have a full-fledged religious festival, surrounding the altar built in front of the golden god. And this, of course, is all really rather horrible. Now, the point I would like to make, or the question I would like to raise, uh, is, is a simple one. Um, as we read through this every year, and of course the story is familiar to us, we're kind of perhaps inured or we're perhaps slightly insensitive to the shocking quality uh, of these events. And after all, these people have just been redeemed by God from Egypt, and a short time later, they turn around and say, Ela Elohecha Yisrael Asher Alucha Me'eretz Mitzrayim, while pointing at the golden calf. 
this seems rather striking and shocking. Uh, these people have just received the Torah from God at Har Sinai, and how is it possible that they can reach such a point, that they can get to such a point? How is it possible that they can commit this sin of the golden calf? And that, of course, is, is the famous question, the problem of how is this possible? Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I would like to explore two different approaches, uh, two different overall approaches to the story of the Chet Egel. And, and the first approach... Uh, is that of Ibn Ezra, and he certainly deals uh, with the question of how is it possible, how can the people collapse into, into such a sin. Um, Ibn Ezra's key comment is on the latter part of, of the story, and to set the background for Ibn Ezra's comment, we need to go a bit further on in the text. Uh, in Pasuk Zion, there's a kind of ptucha in the biblical text, there's a kind of break, and the scene shifts from down at the bottom of the mountain where the people are located with the golden calf up to the top of the mountain where God and Moshe stand in dialogue with each other. And uh, the Torah tells us in Pasuk Zayin as follows, in Paraklam Ebek Pasuk Zayin, V'yidaber Hashem el Moshe, God said to Moshe, Lech uh, go down, Ki shichet amcha hasher halita me'aretz mitzrayim, because the people you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupted. They have turned quickly from the path that I commanded them. They made this thing called an ego masecha. They bowed to it. They sacrificed to it. They proclaimed it. They said, "This is your God, Israel, that brought you out of Egypt." And then, uh, following this, in Pasuk Tet, God seems to announce uh, that he's going to, to punish uh, the people. And what he says is, follows, um, or pardon me, the text says as follows, uh, God said to Moshe, I've seen this people. Uh, we normally translate this as meaning they are, they are stubborn people. Uh, literally, of course, it means they are a stiff-necked people. So they are stubborn or stiff-necked people. And what God means by this, most probably, is that in some sense they are irredeemable. Uh, they're hopeless. There's nothing that can be done uh, with them. Look what they have done. Look how they have worshipped the golden calf, the eagle Masecha. And God continues on a Pasuk Yud and says as follows, Leave me alone, Moshe, and my anger will burn against them, and I will consume them, and make them into a great nation. So, in the simple flow of the text here, the phrase Am Oref, uh, spoken by God, refers to the stubborn, stiff-necked, unredeemable quality of the people. And there's a preface to God's statement that um, now I'm going to destroy them because they're unredeemable. Now, commenting on uh, this phrase, Am Uref, Ibn Ezra says something absolutely fascinating. Um, so we pick it up with Ibn Ezra's comment here in Perak Lamed Bet Pasuk Teddy. says as follows on the words, Vayomar, Tam, and it says as follows, Tam Kshayorif. The reason or the explanation of the phrase kshe'orif, stiff-necked, shelo yishma mashet siva, they do not listen to that which they are commanded. Mashal, it is comparable, or there's an analogy, la'adam holech ledarko b'mhutza, that a man is walking quickly along his path with energy, velo yashiv orif lekorei alav, and he does not turn his head to one who calls uh, to him. He is stiff-necked, he is focused, uh, he is stuck in a certain path, and he cannot turn to the left or to the right, he cannot veer off in any way. And Ibn Ezra goes on after elaborating upon the, the um, literal meaning of uh, the phrase 
Amkshaura, uh, for perhaps the, the metaphorical meaning of the metaphor, he goes on and makes an additional point, and he says as follows: Mashal, and this analogy of the stiff-necked person who is stuck on a certain path and does not pay any attention to one who calls him and tries to get him off this path. Because Am Yisrael, the people of Israel back in Eretz Mitzrayim, had uh, worshipped idols. V'Hashem shalach lehem nevi'im, and God sent to them numerous prophets, Lemar saying, Ish gilulei Mitzrayim hishlichu, that uh, the prophets proclaimed to Israel back in Mitzrayim that they should all throw aside the idols of Egypt. Kichen katuv, as such it is written. What is exactly is Ibn Ezra referring to? He is in fact referring to a prophecy found in Sefer Yechezkel, in Perakhei, Pasuk Vav, and Zion, there in Sefer Yechezkel. And uh, it is worthwhile to take a look at the verses that Ibn Ezra is referencing. In Yechezkel, Perakhei, Pasuk Vav, uh, it says as follows, Bayomahu nasati yadi lahem mitzrayim. The Navi Yechezkel speaks in the name of God. On that day I raised up my hand to take them out of Egypt. El Eretz asher tarti lahem zavat chalabu devashed, to the land flowing with milk and honey, the, the best and highest of all the lands, Pasuk Zion. Va'omar alayhem, and I said to them on that day, back in Egypt, Ish shikutsei anav hashlichu u'begilulei mitzrayim al titamau ani Hashem elokechem. So every man should throw aside the, the shekets or the gilulim. Basically, these are terms for idols. The idolatrous worship of Egypt, throw it away. This is what Ibn Ezra is referring to. What Ibn Ezra is claiming is that B'nai Yisrael, Am Yisrael, had of course been set on a certain path. Uh, they had become acculturated in Egypt. They had been, of course, at the very least partially assimilated. And the practice of Avodah Zarah, of idolatrous worship, had become something regular with them. Well, they are an Am Kshayorif. They are stuck on their path. And precisely because they are stuck on their path, they are psychologically incapable of giving up uh, Avodah Zarah. And at the very first moment, when Moshe disappears, they revert to their normal, standard, modus operandi, their way of procedure, the path they are stuck on as an Am Kshayorif. And of course, they build this golden calf, they build this golden god, and they worship, uh, and they engage in idolatrous worship. And this is the way Ibn Ezra interprets the story. Now, uh, there are some very interesting... Um, advantages uh, of this interpretation of Ibn Ezra uh, to interpret the story as um, a story of Avodah Zarah, of idolatrous worship, which the B'nai Israel are kind of stuck in and are psychologically incapable of parting from. Um, one advantage, I think, and, and this is kind of relatively obvious, is, is that it preserves the simple sense of the text. I think almost without a doubt, um, the simple sense of the text dictates that the story of the Chete Egel, of the sin of the golden cleft, is a story of Avodah Zarah, of, uh, of idol worship. Um, well, why do I say this? Well, I think all we need to do is reference um, some of the verses that we've already uh, noted. Uh, for example, Perak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Dalid, when the people see the Egel Masicha, when they see the golden calf, what do they proclaim? Uh, this is your God, Israel, that took you up out of Egypt. They proclaim it a God. Um, so if they proclaim it a God, and, and as the story goes on, of course, there are sacrifices and bowing down and etc. So obviously this seems to be uh, idol worship. Um, 
Well, as we go on in the story, this the sense of uh, this being an act of idol worship becomes even stronger. And I'd like to return uh, to the scene at the top of the mountain when God speaks to Moshe um, what the Torah reports uh, beginning in Pasuk Chet. Parak Lamed Ves, Pasuk Chet says as follows. God says, Saru Maher Min Haderach, the people have turned very quickly from the path Asher Tzivitim, Asu Lahem Egel Masecha, they have made an Egel Masecha, Ve'ishtachavulo, they bow down to it, Ve'ishbechulo, and they sacrifice to it, Ve'yomru Eila Elohacha Yisrael Asher Lucha Meretz, the time they proclaimed it, the God that brought them out of Egypt. Now, we might not pay too much attention to the particular points mentioned here by God, but I think it's very crucial uh, to pay attention to the uh, particular points made by God, because these points stand in a kind of reverse parallel uh, to some very, very famous and well-known verses. What God refers to here is A, in Ego Masecha, B, the bowing down and sacrificing, and C, the proclamation of the eagle as the God who brought them up out of Egypt. Well, let us go back to Shmot Perkaf, um, Pasuk Bet. Um, and we should already know the reference. It's the beginning of the Aseret HaDibrot. The first, uh, the beginning of the first and, the first and beginning of the second commandments. And the Torah there, in Shmot Perkaf, Pasuk Bet, says as follows. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am the Lord your God. Hashem is your God. Asher Hotzeiticha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. Mibet Avadim. They took you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. Pasuk Gimel, lo yelecha Elohim acherim al panai, there should be no other gods. Pasuk Dalid, lo tase lecha pesel v'chol t'muna asher v'shamay mimal, do not make a, any statue or any picture of anything that is in the heavens above, asher ba'aretz mitachad, nor anything that is on the earth beneath, asher ba'amayim mitachad, nor in the water. Pasuk Hei, lo tishtachavelahem v'lo ta'avdeim, do not bow down to them and do not serve them. Now, Tracking backwards here through uh, the Aseret HaTibrot, what you cannot do according to the second commandment is to bow down or uh, to, to serve, to lota avdeim. This, of course, stands in opposite relation to the Hishtachavuya and the Zvicha, to the bowing down and the sacrifices, which, of course, is Avodah, that B'nai Israel do to the Egel. Uh, well, going back again, um, the people, uh, according to the first part of the second commandment, are forbidden from making any sort of image of not just that which is in the Shamayim, but also that which is upon the Aretz. And undoubtedly, God says they made an Egel Masecha. The Egel Masecha is a violation of the second commandment. Um, they have made an image of something that is upon the Aretz. And if we go back to the first commandment, which is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha Mitzrayim. So I am the Lord your God. It is the Lord who is the God who took the Bnei Israel out of Mitzrayim. And that was spoken in the first of the Sarah that And what do the people say? And what did God say the people said? Ela Elohecha Yisrael Asher Hotzeiticha Meretz Mitzrayim. It is this Egel that is the God that took us out of Egypt, that took you, Israel, out of Egypt. The, the obvious contrast between the first and second commandments on the one end and the story of the Chayda Egel on the other end, especially how God describes the Chayda Egel, certainly dictates that this is an official and clear act of uh, Avodah Zarah. And I think one advantage of uh, Ibn Ezra's approach is that it preserves the simple sense of the text, this being a Chayda, a sin of, uh, of idol worship. Now, a second and interesting uh, advantage uh, of Ibn Ezra um, is that it kind of 
explains uh, some of the stranger aspects uh, of, uh, of the story of the Cheda Egel. And to elucidate this, I'd like to return to um, the, the first verse again. Parak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Aleph. Vayaram ki vashesh Moshe l'aret minahar, etc. And what do the people do? They demand of Aaron, kum aseid lanu Elohim asher yehula they, they demand uh, this God. Uh, and, and they know exactly what they want. And, and strikingly enough, uh, Aaron seems to know exactly what to do. Um, while we're all aware of the Midrash that Aaron just kind of throws the gold into the fire and this eagle just happens to come out, that isn't really the clear sense of the text. Uh, take a look in Pasuk Dalit, if we think about Pasuk Dalit, Ve'yikach mi'adam, ve'yatzarotam b'charet, ve'yaseu ve'yikam asecha. So there's deliberate action, there are three verbs, Ve'yikach, ve'yatze, ve'yaseu. So Aaron seems to know how to fashion uh, this ego ma'asecha. And the people recognize this thing immediately, and their immediate response towards the end of Pasuk Dalit, Ve'yomru e'le elohachi Yisrael, asha'alucha meretun sa'im. There is no surprise. This is exactly what they expected. This is exactly what they ordered. Aaron knows how to provide it. So Ibn Ezra's claim that this is an Egyptian idolatrous practice and that the people are stuck in and cannot deviate from fits very nicely. It explains why the people know what to order, the people know what to expect, and Aaron knows how to provide it. And third, of course, the, the real oomph, uh, the power in Ibn Ezra's explanation is that we now understand how is it possible, uh, the question we began with. We understand the psychology behind the Cheda Ego. The people are stuck in the culture of Egypt. They're stuck in the path of idolatrous worship. And simply put, they cannot get off it or are not capable uh, of deviating from it. They are am she'orev, stuck on their path. And this explains how the sin is possible, or at least gives us some sense of how the sin is possible. Um, So this is Ibn Ezra. Now, however, as I um, pointed out, uh, mentioned in the beginning of the shiur, uh, there's a second approach I would like to talk about, which is the approach of Ramban. Um, interestingly enough, Ramban vehemently rejects the approach uh, that we've outlined until this point. Um, the idea that the sin of the golden calf is a case of idol worship, that it is in fact a hodazara. Um, and Ramban claims that this is not what the sin is all about uh, at all. And in attacking the claim that uh, the Chaita Egel is a sin of Avodah Zarah, uh, Ramban basically makes uh, two arguments. And both of his arguments, uh, his key arguments, are rooted in the very first verse of the story. Uh, and to elucidate Ramban's arguments, I'd like to return to that first verse again, Paraklam Bet Pasuk Aleph, which says as follows. Vayara am kivoshesh Moshe l'redit minahar. The people saw that Moshe was delayed in coming down from the mountain. And the people gathered against or around Aaron. And they said to him, Make us a God that, or make us an Elohim that will go in front of us. This man Moshe brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what, what happened to him. Now, Rabban points out, and I think this is correct, that there's a certain sense of equivalence uh, in the uh, Pasuk between the Elohim that the people want um, Aaron to make for them and Moshe. It is in the absence of Moshe that the people demand this uh, Elohim, demand this God. 
Um, and apparently the simple sense of the text is not so much that there's a kind of equivalence between them, um, but one is meant to replace the other. Um, it is because Moshe is absent that the people need this Elohim, the people need this God, uh, quote-unquote. And this brings us to the first argument of Ramban. Ramban makes the claim that um, it's not really possible that the people want an actual God, an actual deity, because this thing, this Elohim, is supposed to be a replacement for Moshe. And the people never thought of uh, Moshe uh, as an actual deity. Uh, they viewed him as a shaliach, as a representative, etc., etc., but they never viewed him as a deity. So it makes no sense that in his absence, they would demand a deity to replace him. So simply put, because Moshe was never a deity, therefore um, the replacement, the ego, cannot be thought of as a deity, and this is not at all a matter of searching for a new god in that sense uh, of idolatrous worship, in that, that sense whatsoever. And this is the first argument uh, that Ramban makes. Um, Ramban's second argument, uh, which is closely connected to his first, um, is also uh, rooted in the, in the very same um, pasuk. In describing uh, the, the Elohim uh, that they desire, the people say to Aaron, Kum Elohim They say, make us a, a God, and I'll continue to translate it as God for the moment, that will go in front of us. Ramban points out that what does that mean, go in front of us? That's not really the standard function uh, of a god. What a god does is a god performs miracles, um, a god uh, establishes or decides regarding chayim v'mavet and the like, and the people here do not talk about normal godlike functions when they talk about what the eagle is going to do for them. So if the people do not uh, talk about normal godlike functions like the performance of miracles or uh, deciding life and death, for them, and when talking about the eagle, then they are certainly not looking for a deity, and this is not about a search for a deity, and this is really not about Avodah Zarah, and this is the second argument uh, of Ramban. Now, uh, granted uh, Ramban's arguments for the moment, well, what is the, what is the positive side? Um, if they do not want a god, and this is not about idol worship, what is it that they in fact do want, uh, according to Ramban? And here... Um, we need to turn to uh, the text of Ramban. And Ramban pithily states in Periklamid Bet, Pasuk Aleph, uh, somewhere in the middle of his discussion, he says as follows, Aval hayum vakshin Moshe acher. What the people wanted was another Moshe. Amru Moshe shehorelanu haderach mimitzrayim vadheina. They said, Moshe, who guided us on the path from Mitzrayim until this point, and here I skip a few words, this Moshe is gone, he's not coming back. Let us make ourselves another Moshe that will show us the path that wait that lies in front of us. By the word of God in his hand. Now, Apparently, what Ramban seems to claim here is that this Elohim that the people make, the golden calf, the eagle Masecha, is intended as a Moshe replacement. Um, it is intended to replace the missing Moshe. It is a leader. What the people make for themselves is, is a leader. Um, but in fact, it's a little bit more than that. Uh, Ramban here refers to a very crucial uh, phrase that appears many times in the Torah. He says here, Al pi Hashem biado. Uh, at the end of the half sentence I just read, and that's a reference to the fact that throughout the Ma'asa'ot, throughout the travels or the reports in the Torah, the travels of the Bnei Yisrael, there's a phrase that appears over and over, Alpi Hashem biad Moshe, Alpi Hashem biad Moshe, according to the word of God, given by the hand of Moshe. 
Moshe's leadership, Moshe's knowledge as to how to lead the people, how to guide them on the right path, is because he has some sort of access. It is the word of Hashem comes through Moshe. Moshe is a kind of intermediary between God and the people. He is a conduit uh, for divine instruction. And so Moshe's function as a leader is inherently intertwined with his function as a kind of intermediary or as a conduit. And that is what the people want here. What they want is another Moshe, a replacement for Moshe, a kind of leader intermediary that will help them on their travels or help them on their path in the future, according to Ramban. Now, this is a, a very striking claim, very interesting claim. And uh, I think with, without a shadow of a doubt, it has, uh, it has some problems. Um, uh, for example, we're, we're quite aware as to how um, Moshe serves as a leader intermediary. After all, he is a prophet. He receives the word of God and conducts it to the people. But it's not at all clear as to how a statue of gold um, an ego masecha would serve as a leader intermediary and conduct the word of God uh, to the people. Now, Ramban is, is relatively uh, well aware of this. And in fact, later on in his piece, he refers to the fact that the egel is a baby shore, is a, is a baby cow or ox. And uh, the face of the cow or ox is one of the faces that appears upon the Merkava, uh, that appears upon the divine chariot of God uh, in Sefer Yechezkel. Uh, apparently, the shape or form of the eagle has some sort of celestial correspondent, and through this correspondence, there's the possibility of creating a connection, of bringing down the power or the presence of God, of creating a kind of conduit or channel which would allow the eagle to serve as intermediary um, or leader. Um, now, in, in fact, this uh, Ramban goes so far as to kind of turn this back uh, to the text. As we may well remember, um, upon seeing the Egel Hazahav, Aharon um, builds a Mizbeach, and he says something very interesting. In Paraklamid Bet Pasekhei, the Torah says, Vayar Aaron, Aaron Sova, even Mizbeach Lefanav, he built an altar in front of the eagle. Aaron was the one who built the altar, rather strange. Vayikra Aaron, Vayomar, and Aaron called out and said, Chag Lashem Machar. It is a holiday to the Lord, Machar. Now, while the simple interpretation might be that Aaron tries to prevent the collapse uh, into Avodazara, he tries to prevent the people from worshipping the eagle, and he builds the altar to the Shem Hashem uh, in order to um, contrast with the looming Chet of Avodazara. That is not what Ramban uh, claims. Ramban claims that the purpose of building a Mizbeach to Shem Hashem is to facilitate the drawing down or the creation of the conduit between God, between the celestial realm and earth, so that the ego could in fact serve as leader intermediary exactly as the people wanted. And this is the interpretation uh, of Ramban. Now, um, strange as it may be, or strange as it might sound to our ears, there are certainly um, very interesting advantages uh, to the interpretation uh, of Ramban. Um, first uh, and foremost, well, uh, let us review again that very first pasuk. What do the people say they want when they demand this Elohim, a word that can also, by the way, be translated as, as leader or controlling agent as opposed to just God? Um, Beitin is known as Elohim, so when they demand this controlling agent or, or force uh, or leader, according to Ramban, what do they say? Asher yochulifanenu that will go in front of us. Aramban does not explicitly uh, make the point. Yechulifaneinu is a phrase that often appears 
in the context of, of leadership, uh, of even political leadership uh, on some plane. For example, um, in Sefer uh, Shmuel, uh, Perak Yudbet, uh, upon Shmuel's near-parting words, or upon the appointment of a melech, uh, the Navi says as follows, Vayomer Shmuel al-Kol Yisrael, uh, and Shmuel said to all of Israel in Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Aleph of Shmuel Aleph, Hine shamati b'kolchem l'chol asher amartem li, v'amlich aleich ha-melech, I'm going to give you a king. And then Shmuel says in Pasuk Bet, the king goes in front of you. And I'm old and my sons will take over. Shmuel says, I went in front of you from my youth until this day. So it is the king uh, who goes uh, in front of the people. It is the Navi who goes in front of the people. These are, of course, the leaders. And, of course, what did the people request? Elohim, Asheriyahu So this very nicely supports Ramban's claim that the Chede Egal is a kind of desire for um, an intermediary, for a leader instead of Moshe, and that is the entire problem. Um, well, a second advantage of Ramban, it of course mitigates the shock value. Um, because if this is not a Vodazara, the problem of how is this possible is of course not that problematic. Simply put, Moshe is done. The people want an alternative leader, intermediary, so that's a second advantage to Ramban's interpretation. And a third um, advantage uh, to Ramban's interpretation is that perhaps the larger context of Shutashel Mikra supports Ramban's claim of uh, the story as a story of seeking a leader intermediary in a very, very nice way. And what I have in mind is something quite a bit back, uh, something not in Pashat Kitisa, but something back um, in Pashat Kitro, the immediate aftermath of uh, the Aseret Hadibrot. Um, and I'm going to pick it up and read to you from Shmot Perkaf Pasuk Tetvav. V'cholam o'imet ha'kolot v'talapidim v'tkola shofar v'tarashen And all the people saw the the thunder and the lightning, and they heard the sound of the shofar, and they saw the smoking mountain. And what happened? And the people saw, and they trembled, and they stood far away. Simply put, when God's presence appeared, accompanied with the theatric effects of the smoke, the lightning, and the shofar, the people ran away. Well, and then what happened? And they said to Moshe, Let us... Uh, you speak to us and we will hear and let God not speak to us lest we die. So the people cannot withstand the presence of God and they ask Moshe to serve as an intermediary, to serve as a bridge, to serve as a conduit, to stand in between them and God. Well, how does this find favor in Moshe's eyes? The answer is, this does not please Moshe at all. Moshe la'am Moshe said to the people, Al tira'u, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. And so that the awe of God should be upon your face. So uh, Moshe uh, attempts to persuade the people to stand in the moment, to not run away, to not utilize him as an intermediary because the presence of God is a good thing, according to Moshe. Even the fear is a good thing because the fear is awe, and the fear is a test, and the fear is meant to instill Yerat Shemayim, the fear of heaven. It's meant to keep the people on the straight and narrow that they will keep the Torah. 
So Moshe is not in favor of him standing as intermediary. He is in favor of a direct relation between God and the people, between the people and God, of an unmediated relationship, so to speak. But of course, the people do not listen to Moshe's counsel, Pasigud Chet, the people stood far away. And Moshe went into the darkness where God was located. And of course, as we know, at Har Sinai, after the first brief moments of God's speech, it was Moshe who served as the intermediary, as the conduit between uh, God and the people, because simply put, the people could not withstand the actual presence of God. Now, we now come to a striking verse, Perkaf Pasikutet, the report by the Torah, the very first thing that God says to Moshe after the people have run away and requested Moshe as an intermediary, and Moshe begins uh, to stand on Har Sinai to receive the word of God. Say to the B'nai Yisrael, I spoke from the heavens, The very first commandment uh, that is issued here or that follows on the heels of the peoples running away is don't make gods of silver or gods of gold. And the phrase Elohei Zahav is a very important phrase because the Chet HaEgel or the Egel itself, the Egel Masecha, is of course exactly that. It is Elohei Zahav. The people refer to it as... they request uh, Aaron to make them an Elohim. They say, uh, these are your gods. It is an Elohim. That is what technically the, the eagle is. And of course, it's made from Zahav. So it is Elohei Zahav. And in fact, later on in the text, in Shmot Perak Lamed Bet, um, when Moshe goes back up to the mountain, he tells the people, Asitim Elohei Zahav, you've made a god of gold. So in fact... I think we should realize is that this set of verses supports Ramban's approach very, very nicely. At Har Sinai, the people could not withstand the presence of God. They were not ready for the unmediated relationship with God. They require the leader intermediary of Moshe. And on some level, what the story is all about is a kind of over-dependence upon that intermediary, upon that leadership of Moshe. And the moment that Moshe is not around, oh, they make the ego Because they need the Elohei Zahav, they need some sort of intermediary leader um, if Moshe is not absent. And I think, by no coincidence, um, immediately after uh, the demonstration of the people's need for an intermediary, God commands or prohibits the making of Elohei Zahav. And uh, later on, we see that they do, in fact, make an Elohei Zahav. I think this whole complex nicely supports Ramban's claim that the story of the Elohei Zahav, of the Cheta Egel, is really about um, leadership intermediary hood, the need for a bridge or a conduit, and not so much about classic Avodah per se. And this is the approach of Ramban. Now, just to close off, I would like to try to blend uh, the two approaches of Ibn Ezra uh, and Ramban together, and I think from such a blending, something rather compelling uh, emerges. Um, and uh, to do this, I think we should just kind of at least outside of the text, return to the text of Shemot uh, Parak Lamed Bet, just structurally. We might say that without a shadow of a doubt, the first part of the story found in the first ten verses of Parak Lamed Bet supports the approach of Ramban, the approach of seeking a leader intermediary. After all, the text does say, Kum Elohim Make us something that will go in front of us, something that will be a conduit, something that will guide us, a function of leadership intermediaryhood, as we pointed out before. And I think the first part of the story does, in some sense, support Ramban's interpretation. 
But as we move along, especially when we come to uh, God's description of the events, when God refers to the Vaishtachavulo, Vayizbechulo, they bow down to it, they sacrifice to it, and they said, These are, this is your God who took you out of Egypt, and the direct opposite parallel uh, to the beginning of the Aserda, they're both the beginning of the Ten Commandments, without a shadow of a doubt. This is also a story of Avodah Zarah, of formal idolatrous worship, and Ibn Ezra is also correct. Well, what does this mean? I think this leads us to one of two possible formulations. Possibility one, that what begins as a relatively innocent desire for an intermediary or for a leader, what begins out of kind of over-dependence upon Moshe, quickly slides into formal idolatrous worship. What you have here is the story of the slippery slope, uh, the desire, or relatively innocent desire for intermediary or leader, which collapses into full-fledged Avodah Zarah, and that is one way to interpret the story of the Cheda Egel. Or alternatively, perhaps essential, something more essential here, that that very need uh, for an intermediary, that very inability of B'nai Israel to do it themselves, that very need for something tangible, uh, for that conduit in the concrete sense, whether Moshe or the physical object of the Egel, it itself is the root of the entire syndrome of idolatrous worship, that very need for an intermediary leader, for that tangible thing, for that actual conduit, and that's the root of Avodah Zarah, and perhaps that's the real meaning uh, of the story of the Cheta Egel. Okay.